Let's say you're listening to Rhapsody one day and you hear this song. And you think, hey, I like that. Did you ever wonder how you came to hear that song in the first place? I'm Portia Sabin, and today on The Future of What, we're going to follow the creation of a song from an initial idea to a fully realized piece of music. We'll talk to the band, the label, and the digital distributor to figure out how something a musician dreamed up became the sounds that get you through your day. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Today we're following the creation of a specific song, Falling, by the Brooklyn band Here We Go Magic. It's the first single off their new album, Be Small, due in October on Secretly Canadian. Michael Block is the guitarist in the band, and he joins us now. Michael, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So you've been with the band since the very beginning in 2008, right? Yep. And you guys had already put out three full-length albums when you started working on this album, Be Small. Yeah, that's true. So was the writing process different for you guys this time? Yeah, it was actually. The whole recording process was very different for us this time. For the previous two albums, we had really focused on trying to turn our live band energy into an album. And so for the album Pigeons, which was our first one with Secretly Canadian, we all went to a house in upstate New York and hold up and just played together for, you know, three months and built the album that way. And, um, for the last album, A Different Ship, we actually went to London and worked with producer Nigel Godrich and recorded live in his studio there. And so that was a real luxury because then we could actually just play and, you know, he could just record us and we could just play to our heart's content. And so for this one, we had a couple people who weren't available to record and so it kind of started other things. And so Luke and I really had to figure out ways to, to try to get an energetic album to happen with just the two of us. And so a lot of that started with Luke recording, kind of demoing on his own in his home studio. And then we would send files back and forth and kind of flesh things out together that way. And then um, in the end, we sort of married that with live drums. And then there's a few tracks that are also from live band recordings that we were able to do with full band. So there's a lot of different kind of processes that kind of fused into one to get this album to happen. And in the end, I think it's probably more interesting for it, you know. Wow, yeah. So going back to what you said about you share files back and forth, do you guys live in different cities or was this just across the city? No, this was just different mental cities. <laughs> <laughs> We've spent a lot of time together over the last, you know, seven years. So this is about like not not actually getting together. <laughs> right, <laughs> but, this is um, like Williamsburg but, to Greenpoint? Is that what yeah, we're talking about? <laughs> right, exactly. It was actually, in this case, it was Chinatown to Greenpoint. There you go. And um, Yeah, and... So he'd have his privacy to just be creative, and then I'd have my privacy to be creative on top of it, you know. So, like, for a song like Falling, he had the skeleton of that pretty well set with just kind of 
you know, mock lyrics. Like he does that a lot, just kind of doing phonetic blabbering when it doesn't, when a song doesn't have lyrics yet. So he sent that with just kind of a rough electronic beat. And then I added sort of some hiccup beats and guitar and synth parts over it and then sent that back. And then, you know, it would be like a series of compromises each time because he'd like some things that I did, but not other things. And so he'd try to edge those out. And then I'd try to edge some things out, you know, and, and in the end, this sort of like competition of ideas ends up becoming this kind of unpredictable thing that the song is at the end. I love the idea of the unpredictability of what you're going to get from, you know, you send something, I send something, it's like a chain letter. <laughs> it's like yeah, a... it's fun. It's it's fun that way too, because you can just react and not really feel like that you have an audience. And, and then when you're reacting in a way that the person with the first idea never would have imagined, you know, so it's like, and then that can set off a series of responses that neither one of you imagined. So right. it's, cool. it's a cool way to work sometimes. Yeah, definitely. Once in a while. So you guys had worked with Secretly Canadian on two previous records. So at what point did you guys, did you send them demos of the stuff that you'd been doing back and forth? Or did you, had you already had a recording plan in mind? How did that work? No, I don't think we sent them any. I mean, I think, I think at this point, you know, this is our third album with them. So I think at this point, if we say we're working on something, they're pretty hands-off about just taking our word for it and, and that we'll let them know when it's done, you know, which is a great thing about working with them as a label, actually, because they really give us a lot of artistic freedom and they have, there's a lot of trust there that what we come up with is going to be something that they're going to like. That is awesome. And that's one of the later questions I was going to ask you, but I can ask you now is, what do you love about working with Secretly Canadian? In the end, we know that they're real music fans and they're coming at it from a place of being fans first and foremost. So... They've been able to maintain that kind of music first ethos through the years. And it shows in how they deal with musicians and how they deal with the whole process. And so we've never really felt them trying to muddy up our process musically at all. You know, they're, they're very respectful of that. Whereas I've heard horror stories, of, you know, from friends about other labels trying to get involved in the choice of song, or even, even down to the choice of parts, like, you know, arguing about guitar parts and stuff. And, you know, and that, that to me is like, something that would be really difficult if a label started getting involved in musical choices. They're really respectful about that. And I think that is because they choose to work with people that whose music they like, which is a nice thing. Absolutely. So tell us about the recording process. Once you guys had gone back and forth and back and forth, what did you do in terms of the recording? Did you decide to go into a studio and do all that? Or did you just do everything yourselves? On Falling specifically? Yeah. On that song, it was, yeah, that was everything just straight to the computer. I mean, the most rudimentary, the guitars completely straight to the computer and then with like the cheapest garage band simulator amps, <laughs> you know, just like looking for cool sounds in there. And then same thing with the synths and stuff. And then um, at the end, we, had, we went into a studio to record drums on top of the whole thing to kind of give it a live energy that way. And then we, you know, and then we mixed, we went through a mixing process to where some stuff was reamped and uh, given extra edge that way. So that kind of brought stuff more to life. Cool. Did you record more songs than actually made it onto the album? Or did you just record the songs that you knew you wanted on the album? We record so much stuff. It's crazy. You know, some of it becomes full songs that then we scrap. And some of it is just these ideas that are just sitting around. They're everywhere. I mean, there's like, you know, we record first. I mean, we had started for this album, we had started trying to record another live band album. And so there was a whole um, bunch of songs from live band sessions that two of which are on the final album. 
so those are actually were actually played live. But then there's still probably 12 songs from those sessions that didn't make it out of the album. And there's probably 20 songs that were just done, you know, at home that didn't make it onto the album. So yeah, there's a lot. Wow. Yeah, we, we can't wait for you guys' box set. <laughs> yeah, right. Someday. <laughs> a lot of extra songs. That's awesome. So during the mixing process, did Falling stand out to you guys as the single immediately, or how did that work? I don't know if during the mixing process. I think we sort of did things, you know, we sort of touched on one thing and then went to another thing. And so the mixing process was pretty kind of global across the whole thing. And I think, I feel like when first working on that and first kind of like, you know, adding new little little drum hiccups and stuff, it sounded to me like something, like the chorus seemed like something that was, was definitely single worthy. Wasn't really thinking about it in those terms, but there's a definite poppy aspect to it that, that stood out as something that people respond to right away. Michael Block is the guitarist in Here We Go Magic. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me. I'm Portia Sabin, and coming up on The Future of What, we talk to the band's label and Rhapsody. Stay with us. Ben Swanson is a co-founder of Secretly Canadian and does A&R for Here We Go Magic. Ben, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
So for those who don't know, can you tell us what doing A&R actually means in English? <laughs> it, it means listening to a lot of SoundCloud links, a lot of MP3s, a lot of Bandcamp pages, talking to a lot of bands. A lot of times, you know, we come across new bands via the bands that we're currently working with. It's either their friends or people they've played with in certain cities or whatever, or just like really being really sensitive to whenever uh, you hear a name pop up in conversation, you kind of make a mental note of it and go check them out. It's just a lot of, you know, a lot of listening to new music, basically. And then from there, it's like, you know, I guess that's the, the early stages of it. And then from there, it's like, if you end up working with a band, it's getting into the nitty gritty of really helping them make their record and, and figure out what their goals are and, and, and all that and try to try to make that a reality. So over at Secretly Canadian, do you guys sign bands sort of as a group or do you guys do it individually? It's a mix, I guess. You know, we, we definitely share a lot of, like if someone's really feeling something, we, we, we share it right away because, you know, there's been a lot of really massive misses that we've like sort of just sat on and then the band blows up to be the biggest band in, in the world, like <laughs> Arcade Fire or something like that. Uh, right. So we share music really quickly and generally how it happens is that usually there's like a, we don't have a name for it, but I guess you'd call it like a, a lead person or a champion of the band that, you know, is most in love with it. And, you know, you, you get a read on everyone's take because sometimes you end up down the rabbit hole and you, you don't have a really good perspective on the band or you just have your own biases or whatever. So we, we try to have a healthy check and balance that there's multiple people with buying on the band, even if it's not multiple people sort of leading the project along. So I would say it's kind of half totalitarian, half democracy, I guess. <laughs> I personally think that's wise because, of course, it's a totalitarian dictatorship at my label, which means uh -huh. anything I want <laughs> goes. But that can be really bad if you get yourself completely in love with the band and other people are like, um, but they are not heard. Yeah, I mean, with the especially with the staff and all that, like you want buy-in from the entire staff, and obviously not everyone <laughs> that works here can absolutely be one thousand percent in love with every band we release. But you know, you do want a, a certain amount of buy-in, and, and like you said, like you can easily fall in love with a band that you as a label can't really help at all. And in those cases, it's okay to be a fan of the band and be friends with them or whatever. It just you know, we try to really look at things soberly. Is like, can we be as a label be additive to this band's career, I guess, as well as really enjoy the music and really love the people behind it. So sometimes it's not enough just to be a massive fan of the band, especially with all the other like releasing options out there in the world today and, and the amount of energy and, and everything that goes into putting out records. You know, we've tried to really focus over the years. You know, we've, we've gone down the slippery slope of just like really falling in love with the band really quickly and just, you know, and not really looking at the bigger picture. And sometimes that really works out and sometimes it really doesn't work out. <laughs> That's for sure. You can say that again. So today we're talking about Here We Go Magic. So are you the person who brought that band in or was it somebody else? or how did that work? Here We Go Magic was kind of a, an interesting one. Our old lawyer, actually, Mike Manning, ran a, a small label that put out Luke Temple, the main songwriter in the band's early records. And when he came to work for us, he, you know, we, we were introduced to Luke's music and really fell in love with it. And that first Here We Go Magic record was originally a Luke Temple solo record that was going to be released on this micro label my brother Chris and I were running called St. Ives. 
And it was, that record's really, really good. Like, I love that record. And we were just, I don't know what happened. It's, I guess it's one of those, like, rabbit hole moments where you're, like, you're just so focused on, like, this is what we're doing. It's this micro-label, 300, limited pressing record. And it's great. We love this record. And as Luke started to get feedback from other people on it, he's like, no, this is actually something special. I want something more than that. And, you know, it's, it's kind of embarrassing in hindsight, but we're like, well, that's not what St. Ives is all about. And <laughs> we didn't really, like, pivot to Secret of Canadian at all. And then, so they put out, out that first record with Western Vinyl. And so we were sort of, I don't know, that's kind of how we got introduced to the band. And um, So you uh, lost that first record to Western Vinyl. Yeah, yeah. Oh, ouch. We, just, we got like just so fixated on this like limited pressing 300 without, it was just, I don't know, you just kind of get tunnel vision sometimes and you don't understand what you're even talking about after a while or why <laughs> you're making decisions. You just kind of, I don't know, it was, it was a learning experience as well to kind of somehow like try to go macro and be like, actually, is this a really great record? Can we do something with it? And so um, when the second record came along, you know, we've been talking to him for a while and we, Chris, Chris and I and, and Mike, you know, kind of all really went after the band. And obviously you were will, willing to say mea culpa, <laughs> give yeah, us another chance. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> That's definitely. awesome. They were, they were kind enough to, to forgive us for that. That's awesome. So you're on record number three with them. It's their fourth record. But right. The third one. Yep. But mm-hmm. third one for you guys. So basically what we're doing is sort of a farm to table thing here today where we follow the song. And so we just talked to Mike Block from the band uh-huh. about writing the song and recording it. And he said one of his favorite things about working with Secretly is that you guys are very hands off. You let them do what they want to do. Uh-huh. And certainly for a third record, I think that's very typical because, you know, you trust the band. You're, you say, OK, you know, this is great. And you expect that they're not going to deliver to you a record that is you know, a 48-minute instrumental think piece on a piece of lint they found under their bed. Right. Right? I hope not. (laughs) Which sometimes it is, and then you're in a different place. Yeah. But obviously you guys trusted them. So how did you guys first hear the music for Be Small? Did they send you demos, or did they just send you the finished record? We had a couple, I guess you'd call them sketches early on. I think there was vocals on on a couple of the tracks, and but they were... You know, they were sent to us as like sketches, and that's basically what they were. And, you know, they sound like sketchy, here we go magic songs. So it was like kind of tough to get a beat on exactly how the record was going to come out. After that, it was pretty much radio silence. You know, we were talking with them, but they didn't let us hear anything until the final mixes. And it was all mixed, and it was actually mastered. I believe they actually mastered it, but it wasn't sequenced yet. And they were pretty adamant about that. And, I, I think it was smart in a lot of ways because they really need to like sort of really dive in and, and have like total clarity on their artistic vision of the record. And I think sometimes that's really, really helpful, especially when you have like really smart guys like, like Michael and Luke. They don't need certain like artistic guidance, you know, whereas sometimes you work with artists and they just kind of actually crave that sort of feedback. Sure. But where sometimes it, it, it hurts is like you, you get the music and for us, you know, in bands, especially with like vinyl turn times and everything, like you got to like just kind of hit the ground running and figure everything out. And sometimes like having like rough mixes or all that like really helps wrap your brain around like what is this record all about and and how are you going to like approach it from a marketing standpoint and all that. So like we didn't really have the luxury of time with in that in that situation. So um 
but that's a long, long-winded answer to say it was delivered to us the first, pretty much the first time I heard the record was when it was totally baked and totally wow. finished. Yeah. yeah. So when you listened to it that first time, did Falling stand out right away? And did you think to yourself, wow, that's, that song's totally the first single? Yeah, it did. It's, it, there's a song on the album called Ordinary Feeling that's actually my favorite song. But, like, you know, with a band like Here We Go Magic that I'm such a fan of, you know, just really personally that, I, you know, you got to kind of take a step back. And it's like, I'm not the normal, like, Here We Go Magic fan or the normal, like, music fan. You know, I, like, with this band, I go really deep on. And, like, Ordinary Feeling is a lot more subtle. And Falling just definitely really seemed to encapsulate what the band is all about, what this new record is all about. And you'd also be like, it's not, it's not quite as like nuanced as some of like the slower or more sort of spacious songs or whatever. It's a little bit more immediate. Cool. So what do you love about working with this band in particular? I mean, I love, I just, I'm such a fan of the music, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a huge Talking Heads fan. I love the, their second album, more songs about building and food and like a lot of like the sort of weirdly arpeggiated guitar is really reminiscent of that without being without stealing it like it captures like for me it does musically very similar things as that talking heads record but like being still being very much its own thing it's it doesn't doesn't seem to be copying it too much at all and it's just i love how sort of nerdy it is but it also is really able to find like sort of real soul and heart in these really sort of almost prog rock riffs or whatever that they do and it's a really tough thing to pull off but that dynamic is is really great and luke's lyrics i'm i just am in love with they're a little bit oblique without just being super obtuse or whatever they you know they definitely have some really interesting themes going on and they're not too direct and they're not too i don't know, it just finds that really nice sweet spot ben swanson is a co-founder of secretly canadian and he does a and r for here we go magic ben thanks so much for joining us yeah thank you
of the first part of the show or want to hear past shows, you can go to killrockstars.com slash the future of what or go find us at the Apple iTunes store. I'm Portia Saban. So we followed the song Falling from the band to the label to the distributor. But how do you come to hear it streaming online? Ian McKinnon works at Rhapsody, and he's here to tell us about that final step. Ian, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Portia. So you work at Rhapsody, which is a streaming and download service. Can you tell us what your job entails? So I am a labor relations manager. I am the lead for the marketing for all independent releases, including independent labels and independent distributors. Cool. So, so I'm What the, does that mean? <laughs> so I, I'm the liaison between distributors and labels to our programming teams and our marketing teams. Rad. So can you tell us how you first hear the music that you play, like that music that comes in from the distributor? Oftentimes, I'll, I'll get advances from things, and I obviously get priorities from labels and distributors as to you know what they'd like to see featured on the service. Obviously, everything that they put out that we have deals with are ingested into the service and, and exist on the service. But as far as a, uh, a programming standpoint, the, the priorities for you know each label and, and distributor are uh, sort of the top of mind things, just in you know the same way that in physical retail, you know, end caps and things of that nature exist. So I then take those priorities and then pitch them to our programming teams. And our programming teams are a series of editors that do programming for us across all different genres in all different countries, depending upon where we are. So I, I do get advances, but then I, I make a long story even longer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that I, I then push for the priorities from my labels and distributors to being featured on Rhapsody and Napster. So how would it work with a song like we're following Falling today by Here We Go Magic? So how would that work? The distributor would contact you and say, hey, this is our focus track? Yes, agreed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that's, that's how it comes down. And obviously, you know, there's a full length coming. So, you know, for a song like Falling from Here We Go Magic, like I would push for that track to be featured in playlists or things of that nature. But at the end of the day, you know, like there's only so much real estate on the homepage that, you know, like when the full one comes out, I'm sure we'll see a lot more, you know, featuring. But Rhapsody, and this might be a little different than some of the other services, we do feature singles at times, but we are still of the old school mind that, you know, albums matter and, you know, music matters and in that regard. So it's it's kind of a it's kind of a tightrope. So you mostly feature albums is what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. And like artist spotlights and label spotlights, things like that. Cool. Can you tell us from your experience working at Rhapsody, like, is there a particular success story that you can point to where you're like, oh my God, we, you know, I love this band and they got feature placement, something like that? Yeah. I mean, it's, 
I've been there for maybe too long insofar as I've been there for <laughs> nine years that I don't I don't have one that stands out, especially with how we program things on Rhapsody and Napster, where you know we we do have video content, we do have you know a large editorial team that that does more than in in some ways than than some of the other services. It it's not just the oh my gosh this has gone viral and we got to get it up. Our customers are fairly savvy, and a lot of them have been with us for you know decade and a half. So they're just as aware of what's coming as we are in some ways. So I can't think of one particular anecdote about that but 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 by and large you know if our editors who also write for other you know publications as well a lot of them do they're hot on something you know they're they're going to feature it and so you know if it's getting you know if they're writing about it for spin or pitchfork or whoever i, I can guarantee that you know like they're going to push it on our end as well because obviously we want to you know serve the music to the good the customers that you know obviously makes sense too so that's one thing that really makes Rhapsody stand out from other services is that you guys do have that curatorial or editorial slant on things. Agreed. Yes. Yeah, I think it is definitely a differentiator. We've been we've been doing that since since obviously longer than I've been there. And I, I think, you know, it, it definitely is, you know, it is a dialogue and it is, you know, you're essentially walking into your, you know, local record store and I, I view all these services like local record stores and you talk to the clerk behind the counter about what's what's hot and cool. And, and we, we definitely try to, you know, emulate that. Cool. And for you, what's the best part about working at Rhapsody? I would say having access to everything is great. I think s- streaming services are good in that regard. I think also that we are a fully paid service has been great as well. I mean, obviously there's, you know, rumblings and, you know, in different, you know, episodes you've done about, you know, like, like how, how folks get paid, you know, we don't have a freemium model. So in theory, you know, we are paying out more than our competitors are potentially per stream, but, but definitely being able to work with, you know, fine folks like yourself has been great. You know, just, you know, I, I still view myself as just a record store clerk, which is what I sort of started out as. And then and, <laughs> and I, I, and not in a bad way, like I, I think, you know, it's a value. So I think being able to work with these amazing labels and distributors and artists is, is, has been, you know, my, 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 definitely my favorite part of the job. So tell us just for those people who aren't familiar, Napster sort of basically turned into Rhapsody. Can you tell us how that worked? So we bought the Napster service. So post Napster being a pirated service, it was purchased by Roxio, the brand was, and then it, they created an actual music service similar to Rhapsody. And then four years ago, it was four years ago, we we purchased the Napster brand and grabbed all those subscribers. So obviously Rhapsody's a little younger than the original Napster, the pirated file sharing, but in the same vein, like it, it's it 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 feels like it's a good home for it, at least brand wise because now it's just another music service. So uh so we we use that acquisition in order to push outside the US. So we're Rhapsody in the US and then Napster X US and we're in thirty four territories currently. Wow. So we had a big argument in the office the other day about what Napster actually means and we ended up doing some research and finding out that Napster means nothing. Right. Is that true? Well I don't I mean you mean you mean the actual word like the or word what, Napster, what yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. It, yeah, I guess it doesn't mean anything. But uh, you know, a lot of those words from that time don't don't mean much of anything anymore. Wasn't it kind of like that Friendster time? Like it was like yeah. everything with stir on the end. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that. Yeah. That seemed to be the trend, and and obviously, you know, Friendster has gone the way of the dodo. But I think I think the the idea behind Napster and and I never actually used the the original file sharing service because I value music. But the notion where you have access to everything and you should pay for it. 
obviously that's our model. Like it, it seems like that, you know, that was the bright idea once, once Napster became not a thing that consumers wanted to be able to consume however they wanted to and streaming services then became a thing. Ian McKinnon works at Rhapsody. Ian, thanks so much for joining us on The Future of What? That's our show. The songs we played today were used by permission from the artists. You heard Here We Go Magic's How Do I Know and Falling, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. If you have a question you want answered on the show, please email us at thefutureofwhatshow at gmail.com. Our episodes are archived at killrockstars.com slash thefutureofwhat, and you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Our program was engineered by Reed Harvey and is produced by John Sepulvedo and Will Watts. Thanks to Digital One Studios in Portland. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. 